RDI Insights. Mike Dempsey in conversation with Royal Designers. Hello and welcome to the RDI Insights podcast series, where I will be interviewing major figures in the design industry who have been made RSA Royal Designers for Industry, the highest accolade for a designer in the UK. The award was introduced in 1936 to highlight and honour the work of industrial designers for their sustained creative excellence and benefit to society. I'm at the home and studio of the illustrator and writer Sara Fanelli. Her world consists of fantastic monsters and eccentric characters of her own invention. For over a decade, she has been sharing this world with children and adults alike through an array of illustrated books that have earned her a worldwide reputation as one of the most distinctive and idiosyncratic picture book creators. Born in Florence, Italy, she came to London in the 1980s to pursue her desire to illustrate and attended the City and Guilds Art School, Camberwell College of Art, and then finally the Royal College of Art. She has won many international awards and commendations for her work and has just recently been made an honorary Royal Designer for Industry, the first female illustrator to be honoured by the faculty in its entire 70-year history. Sarah, I want to start by, I think, for the people listening, I want to describe this room. Um, We're in your studio in North London and... The thing that I like about both designers and illustrators is that no matter where they live, they, they always create a, a really interesting sense of place. And uh, this is no exception because it's filled with what many people might think was clutter, but to me it's fantastically stimulating. You've got, on the top shelf of your book, you've got lots of tins, metal toys, um, pieces of three-dimensional typography, um, little little children's. Uh, I have to put my glasses on to see, but it's <laughs> just an array of um, of items that you've no doubt collected, I guess, from travels and and various shops and and junk shops. You've got pots and ceramics and dried flowers, and below that you've got more toys and then lots of books. And in the centre of the room, you've got your your work table, which is uh, is cluttered with pieces of uh, pieces of uh, what look like collections from the local park, leaves and branches and lots of rough pieces of cut-out paper. And, and there's another table to write, which is in a similar state. So the room is really overly loaded with lots of clutter, which is, I guess, it's your, it's your engine room for where you work and create. So I think, you know, that set the scene. We're in your studio in London, where you you work every day. So I wanted to start, really, by asking you um, why, um, having been born in Florence, which in its own right is is entrenched with art history and is very beautiful, Mm -hmm. why you decided to um, come to London for your art education, which you presumably had to fund as well, which is, you know, an expensive thing to have to do. So what was your reasoning for that? Yeah, um, when I was in Florence, I studied... Um, I didn't go to an art high school. It was more about literature and language. And so, although I've always drawn and I always enjoyed 
painting and drawing, I really felt that I had to spend some time figuring out which part of all the avenues or all the art world I would like to follow. And a friend of mine um, told me about foundation courses in England. I'd never heard about such a thing. And it seemed to be making sense of having a course of just one year where I could try different uh, techniques and different approaches. So that was the original idea, the foundation course, and the fact that it was only on offer in London, well, in the UK, and then it made sense to come to London. And then just discovering how wonderful the art colleges were here and very, very much the um, focus on experimenting and trying to find your own voice, while in Italy the equivalent, there wouldn't quite be an equivalent to um, art colleges in design and illustration at the time when I would have done it. Now it's more set up and structured, even in state university. But when I grew up in Italy, it was only a couple of private colleges in Milan and or very few places you could do not fine art. Um, so to me, it was incredibly, um, even just the fact that you called your tutors by their first name and not by their surname, this openness and uh, this sharing towards finding each of you your own path. It's so different from in Italy. And that was in the mid-80s that you... It was... Uh, my foundation course was 89. 89. 89, yeah. Or 88, 89, yeah. Well, be before we get on to that, which we will later, I want to sort of go back for a moment to Italy and I want to to talk about the young Sarah Finelli and, you know, what kind of child you were. Were you a naturally creative child? Were your parents creative? Did you have influences around you? I mean, how did the, this, this kind of passion for drawing and, and um, this eclectic um, thing that you have that's very evident in your work, how did that come about? Yeah, no, I was very lucky because my parents, they exposed me, one, my mother more directly, my father more indirectly to um, a lot of art through books and also visiting museums and uh, churches that are full of wonderful um, works in Italy and abroad. And so I must say, yes, it was definitely encouraged and I was very lucky in that sense to be exposed. I rem one of my very strong memories is of being a child and um, sneaking to my parents' bed and looking at the spines of books and names of people that I now know who they are, but they were very, very strange name. Uh, like Otto Wagner or Adolf Loss, and just I remember the Loss, L O O S, the two O's. On it was a very nice type, very simple on the spine, and and then slowly the curiosity of looking what is inside that book, not just the spine and how it went with the one next to it. Um, and did you draw? Did you? So did the drawing ability sort of start fairly young, or? So well, it was. I had. I have a sister, so we both probably were. Uh, encouraged to draw but I seem to enjoy it more and I remember when I was little particularly making three-dimensional things uh, a bit like you were mentioning you used to do and then also um, trying to make books um, at first with my sister as a journal as a family journal but it never worked out and then instead making just very very simple books but there's always a connection, I guess, with books there, because I started by saying the books we were surrounded by, even before the art we saw. And then immediately I think of drawing, but I also think of making things and making books. 
Um, and then I also used to, when you have to do commitments of studying and school, I carried on just doing the drawing because it was something that was encouraged, but also something that gave a nice time and space on my own relationship between the object and just the quietness of, of line. And it, I think partly because I didn't go to a art, um, we call it liceo artistico, mm. uh, it made it even more of something that I love because it was never something I had to do mm. as a homework or it was more the treat after the homework. And your parents, were they in any way in creative fields or, or, or not at all? Yes, no, that's why they had the books and they showed. And um, my mom was very, is very much interested in the history of textiles uh-huh. and she did research in that, and then she taught art history at high school. Ah, okay. And my dad, um, he teaches history of architecture at the university there, and he also had various researches, some in medieval Florence and some more about um, 18, sorry, 19th century and 20th century architecture and graphics. So that. Was so very that was lucky. a very healthy atmosphere for any child that had a sort of visual sensibility. If well, you had that around you. Yeah, healthy at least from the artistic point well, of view. Being, yes. And being in Florence, of course, yes, which, is, true. which in itself is uh, fantastic. I mean, I heard a really, really horrible fact um, the other day on the radio, which I don't know whether you heard it, and, uh, and they, they're now saying that children in the West are spending on average uh, up to six hours a day sitting in front of their computers playing computer games, which is... Um, six hours? That's, that's, I found that difficult to believe. But Even just to think of six hours of free time. And that's, uh, I mean, it seems to me that whilst computers brought us, you know, lots of wonderful things, for children to be doing that now and not actually be experiencing just being outside or looking at things or just being curious, being locked into a, a world that's sort of dictating to them seems to be a great tragedy. Um, you know, and listening to what you just said about mm-hmm. your childhood and being surrounded by books and being inspired by your parents is something that sadly doesn't seem to happen as much uh, these days. But also the fact of watching a screen for however stimulating is always a bidimensional experience and some for every childhood up to maybe this generation you would connect with the smell of different seasons and also with trying by mistake making marks by mistake or not even making marks but just making a mess by using I don't know I used to really like playing with talcum powder and water and trying to because the talcum powder tries to stay on top of the yes. water or mixing water with earth and it had the same sound as the hot chocolate when my grandmother used to make hot chocolate it had the, the spoon against the grain of the chocolate it was the same as and all those things that then also helped the special you know, playing with paper or all those games with simple pieces of wood. It's more of a three-dimensional approach, so I can't imagine how those children... Also, using your hands is so lovely. Yes. And, I mean, the, the fact of the matter is that your area of work is a very traditional pursuit for the child. It's, you know, pictorial storybooks mm. aimed more or less, although many adults obviously appreciate books, they are very much aimed at children, it would seem to me, and certainly my children who have read you know, several of them because I've had them all, um, I can see how they respond. And, and I think particularly, I, I noticed in in your books, looking at your 
earlier books as well. I think your first book was Button. Yes. Book, and the second one, the Map book. Yeah. Which struck me because it seemed that you built into your books very early on this idea of participation. Yeah. That you wanted the the reader not just to read the book and the story, but you wanted them to be involved in some way and create something to be part of the process. And so, in the, for example, the map book, the whole cover opens out and you, on the reverse side, you have your own space to create your own map of whatever it is. And in that book, you, you know, you've, you've mapped out um, your life, you know, it, right down to a map of your heart, which I thought was a very touching <laughs> thing to do. And I, it just struck me that, you know, having that kind of thought to ensure that the reader um, is involved in some way is very unusual because I haven't seen many books like that. And, and and you seem to have done it from the very beginning. So what I was going to ask you is that, that did the, the, the writing of these stories come first or the illustration? How did the two kind of come together or was it a natural process from, I mean, you talked just now about being a child and, and keeping a little journal. Mm. So you've always liked the idea of telling little stories and illustrating them, or how did it how did it sort of crystallise? From I'm thinking more. You had your foundation course mm. here, and then you went on to do a, a degree course, and then you later went to the Royal College, of course. So tell me about the progress from. The foundation course, how you discovered your feet and a direction and how it evolved into what you're now doing. How did, oh. how did that process sort of come about? Did you have a grand plan? or? Oh, no, no, absolutely not. But um, I'll, just, I'll tell you about the map book, which actually happened more or less at the time of um, the towards the end of my BA. Um, the reason why it's I was thinking back on Italy because there's um, a lot of things that I have understood and I appreciated about where I come from by not being there and at that time I was trying to when you're at college there's so many projects and one of the things that was really important and I was taught at Camberwell um, was that an image should have a message. Well, some people, there's a space for everybody and there's a sort of illustration that can be just a decoration. But I like, even for how little the message is, for an image to contain some message or some story or some thoughts inspiring, even small thoughts, uh, kernel of an idea. And I was um, trying to in a way, revisit my roots. It was only three years that I had left Italy, but still, that was my recent, most recent experience. And I was drawing these maps, uh, remembering my neighborhood and then my house. So it was this, maybe was some kind of uh, homesickness or trying to remember what was peculiarly Italian about that upbringing compared to where I was then. And then I was also looking at Jean-Michel Basquiat's painting and I really liked the roughness or the vitality and the directness of his marks and his colours. And so it links with the fact that when I started my BA after the foundation course, um, I was painting fairly flat colours with Mm. gouache. I mean, drawing has always been really important. And even now, although the drawing doesn't come always directly into the images, I do keep sketchbooks and I 
particularly draw when I am on holiday or traveling rather than holiday. And then, so at that time, trying to find different languages, looking at um, other artists and looking at Basquiat, I then wanted to marry these two things, the map, the memory and the um, visual inspiration. And then in the end, when the book came about, actually in every spread, there's an element that has a dotted line where the child can put their own um, idea. So in the, for instance, the map of the heart is a little bit that says someone special and mm. everybody can write who it is. Or in the map of the tummy, tummy you yes. can put your favorite food. And so to try to make the whole book almost... So that was my version, but then it could become the version of the child or the person who's got it. So I didn't want it to become too much because I had that experience, but other people have different experiences. I wanted it to be more of an inspiration to then apply that way of thinking to the other person's experience. So that's about the interaction. Also, that's why I dared calling it my map book, because then it would be mine for everybody who has it. Interesting looking at that book the map book and looking at how your your style has evolved that early book was it seemed to be much more painterly yeah big flat bold colors very little color yeah in it at all and when i look at the later books mythological monsters yes yeah. okay that's got this fantastic combination of collage and in particular it has this what seems to be a passion with uh, hand lettering that you use yourself, but a lot of uh, material that you've sourced from old ephemera. Um, so it would be um, that's pieces of exercise books or ruled paper, um, which which seems to give your work on one on one level a sort of a nostalgic feel, whilst being incredibly modern. So I wanted to ask you a little bit, and and it's sort of because I think these these elements that you find these. Um, these old pieces of material yeah. gives it a sort of strange pattern of age. It's 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 an odd um, collaboration of things, and I just wanted to ask you a bit about how that came about, and what is your why have you got this fascination for these, you know, these uh, copper plate lettering and <laughs> um, marble papers and all of these different little elements that go in to make these pictures, which are, you know give a very rich um, view of the world. I just wanted to. Yeah, the papers, it's, um, I think it's a combination of two things. One, the strongest one probably is the fact that I feel because they, you can clearly from the marks they have or the colors or the age coloring, um, you can tell that these pieces belong to a different time and therefore they bring their own story with them. There is a, I like collage because you can interweave different layers and even within the collage you can have different stories with the pieces. So in mythological monsters when there's the spread of um, the Minotaur and it takes place in ancient Greece, in fact in Crete, I looked through the collection of papers looking for some sandy, earthy colour representing Greece and then I found this very mottled old piece of paper and the fact that it was mottled, it brought the history with itself of um, time and accidents and all these evocations um, which to me enrich the collage. So one is the stories they bring in in their own with time that they bring. And the other thing is probably the fact that I tend to 
like maybe it was relating to my childhood as you say now childhood is very different but I like things where you can see um, marks and you can see um, something that is handmade and those papers seem to have a little bit of imperfection or to me it's even more perfect the fact that you they were probably made with um, plates uh, metal plates and so they're slightly embossed and you can still see that that handcrafted element it just aesthetically appears to me and maybe yeah. it's because it's related to this thing of a society where you do play with objects and everything has a history and and a story so those those are the reasons of course there's also a sheer well both those things i said also go with a sheer uh, aesthetic element that's that I, it's they fit each other. It, that doesn't don't taste just justifying both ways. Yeah, and I mean I think the other thing about your work is that that is uh, very evident is that even though you you might be termed an illustrator, for me I think you're very much a designer, and I think your work is clearly designed, and you you have total control over the whole thing. In that you more often than not. Um, unless it's something like the Pinocchio book, which is typeset in a traditional way. But with your own books, they all tend to be handwritten yeah. and planned. Yeah. And um, they have this um, riot of different sort of lettering styles and emphasis and underlining and so forth. And and so you must, how do you plan these books, you know, rather like a designer would plan layouts in the same way as opposed to many traditional illustrators they just produce the illustrations that drop into spaces for others to to create the design around but you're in control yeah. it seems from the cover uh, right through to the, the very end yes is, again is that something you've I mean, it seems to be from those early books, again, something you've done from the very beginning yes, yeah, because I see the book as a whole and Every, I love typography, I love the shapes, I love the the playfulness or, or all the elements that you can use and and the they seem to be make sense to use those in a picture as well. So when you it's very true when I plan a page, I tr- plan the elements of the design of the illustration, but equally at the same time, just as if it is another element of the illustration applying where the type goes and what kind of weight it has in the balance of that composition. So it's all one, um, it's it's all at the same time. And of course the other thing, um, you know, the other uh, factor that things you on is that you write your own books as well. I mean, you've, and was that also kind of a, a plan from the very beginning that you wanted? Because I think have all of your books, apart from the the occasional excursions using, you know, working with the classic material, you've written them all. Yes, but they are very much picture books. They're very uh, picture-led and they're more, I don't consider myself a writer at all. It's more coming up with a story and a world for that story. Um, and yes, they, they are fairly simple stories. Dear Diary is quite complicated, but again, it's more the idea of one day's event seen by seven different characters. But then in the, it's not, there's, it's definitely still a picture book, although the writing, and that is the ultimate example because it reproduces pages of a diary. So the handwriting is so vital. Mm. Um, So in those pages, the weight and the importance of the text is so equal to that of the 
um, of the images, but um, I still consider it very much a picture book. So, do you do you find that uh, you know one one comes first? Do you do you are you always sort of thinking through possible storylines and then and then turning them into you know maybe something more pictorial or or is it the pictorial mm. thing and then you add you add a story around the pictures? Sort of. It, they each have a different genesis. The books very and I do try. I never think of the books in connection to the previous one, if anything, is by contrast with the previous one, because they all feed different passions or different ideas um, or different researches at that time. And most of the time, I think if I try to uh, balance out, it does, the story comes out of a visual idea. So maybe there's a drawing or an image that I came across in my personal research or that keeps coming back that I particularly enjoy at that time and I decide I would like to like write a story for this character or develop this image into a narrative um, and that's why probably I end up doing the stories as well it's not because I think I'm a fantastic writer but because I can then create the stories exactly to what I want to draw and around mm. the world I, I want to depict I mean, being being a writer um, is not, in a way, dissimilar to being an illustrator. And you're both in that it tends to be a fairly solitary business. You know, you tend to most illustrators that I know over the years um, work at home with the radio on, you know, oh. the working way. Or you know, these days many of them work far away, and they they literally send their work in via. Um, by scanning and sending their material directly to their publishers or sending certainly all of the rough material it used to be faxes, you know, before yeah. this, that's sophisticated. But what's your, just tell me what, what's your kind of daily routine? How do you, how does the day start for you when you, when you're working on a project? Um, well, somehow, even if it's a personal project, there seems to be always something on. But I'm really bad in the morning. <laughs> I like, I get all this hope for the future. It's like the Saturday before the Sunday at six o'clock, all the potential of life seems to come on the horizon. So then I take, tend to work till late, which means I'm not very early bird. But when, um, when I st if there's a project ongoing, then it, there is that wanting to carry on from where you left it last night and uh, see where that day is, like a little bit of the journey on that path, where that day will bring you to. Um, there's also, I mean, that's the ideal scenario when you have the time to do what you want. There's also all the interruptions of the phone calls and emails and practical things. So that's why, again, the end of the day or weekends, I find... Is the best time to create properly, have the space. So, do you, I mean, do you think that um, I, I've always felt with uh, designers and illustrators, they kind of have this innate need to share things with people. You know, they, they, there's an excitement about sharing what you've done. Yeah. And it would seem to me that if you go through a long period of working alone on a project mm. that you've sweated over and agonized over for, you know, months and months and months, and the, the the social part for you is revealing it to the outside world and and getting a response. I mean, do do you fit, do you do you get that kind of sense that you you want to share this? If you feel it's going well and you you're you're, you're liking what you're seeing, that you then can't wait to 
to get it out there and, and let people, you know, be exposed to it? Um, I'm quite critical of, of what I do, so it's fairly rare to have that. But when the book comes together, I think to finally see it, um, say, well, maybe if I see the proofs and then I, I see the um, fruit of that project, then yes, then I can't wait, for instance, for the book to be out. Usually you have to wait for another half a year, if not a year, yes. between that stage. And that's true. But the feedback, for which with the book, usually is by bringing it in at the, to the publisher. Um, but I must say, with everything I do, it's really nice when, and it helps a lot when people make comments. And even this thing at the RDI, um, to me, it's it's one of those elements that make me think is worth carrying on doing what I do because there is a sense of very much isolation and a lot of self doubt. And even when you work for short-term commissions, people sometimes they forget to tell you that they like something that you did because they are yeah. so moving so fast. And and it's not, you know, maybe they did really like it, but you then hear about it three years later. They say, oh, you did that, that illustration that was so good, but they forget to tell you. And so this, if occasionally I get a letter from somebody that has seen a book or also from which is very warm to receive, but also from colleagues yes. like this occasion. It, yes. it really does help a lot because working in a void, it can make you feel a bit very insecure, especially when you keep, um, in order to carry on the inspiration, you keep looking at these wonderful, wonderful things that have been done. And then you try to think, is it, is it worth my carrying on doing, trying to be as good mm. as, yeah. Well, I mean, I think we should say that you know, we're kind of on the on the verge of you becoming an honorary royal designer for industry, um, uh, which in itself is a, a you know a, a remarkable honour. But more importantly, um, you you will be the first woman in the entire 70-year history of mm. the Faculty of Royal Designers um, who who worked in the area of illustration. Never before have there, which I found um, staggering. But yeah. checking back. There have been no female illustrators ever um, in the faculty, so that's that's an amazing thing. Yeah, it's very surprising. It's an incredible honor to be the first one. I can only think it must be to do with the histo history of the faculty rather than yes, yeah. I, I, yeah, because I know for a fact myself that you know throughout the fifties there were quite a lot of extremely sure. talented uh, British female illustrators. Yeah. you know that that I used to like a lot why they never got um, yeah. brought into the faculty well it's for the people that were uh, part of you know part of that group at the time to to answer but it seems very odd to me yeah um, i want to move on to another kind of area of your life which um seems to me to be quite important to you and that's your your involvement with promoting drawing and children so for example, I think you've been involved with some of the Quinton Blake initiatives, Drawing Power and, and The Big Draw. Have you you've been involved in those? Or if not, you have been involved with some Arts Council yes. projects yes. of a similar nature where you're trying to encourage children to see things yes. through drawing, which seems to tally or seems to dovetail into what... Quentin has been doing for yeah. many years here. Tell me a little bit about that and what you've been doing. Well, mainly it was in conjunction with the Magic Pencil, which the was Magic an Pencil. exhibition of 
um, British contemporary illustration um, selected and curated by Quentin Blake and Andrea Rose at the British Council. And it travelled as an original exhibition with original artwork in about six countries in Europe. And then it travelled many, many hundreds of countries all over the world in a facsimile um, edition where each illustrated, there were about 13 or 12 illustrators and each of us had as a facsimile version, I think, four pictures. But that's been much more easy to send abroad. It reached places that really to gained a lot by having those images there. And I had the chance to travel sometimes with the exhibition. And I went, for instance, to Venezuela and India, um, Romania, and recently to Portugal and did workshop with local children and also local illustrators. And that those were both really fascinating. With the children, what I love is to see how easily and instinctively they work with collage because in I find that in England uh, somehow collage is seen as a very European as opposed to English um, technique or method of working and there's a certain uh, fear about collage especially from um, older generations while children instinctively it's the easiest way because there's no fear of holding a pen and comparing to an idea of a good drawing that they have in their mind and so they can be attacking the, the material and using the, um, the scissors very bravely in a way even more bravely than I do. And publishers would be very... Sometimes I take photographs of these pictures to show the publishers to prove them that collage is very easy for children. So that was from that point of view. And with the illustrators, sometimes it was really touching to see what sort of community in the places where there isn't so much going on. The um, fact that every illustrator knew each other and and that they were quite supportive of each other. I really, especially in Portugal recently and also in Venezuela, this sense of a community. And the level, I thought, was good. They were trying to look at the right things and... Mm. Um, so those were refreshing. I mean, in India, it was very hard to have um, enough materials to work with, but whatever we did, there seemed to be such a thirst for for it. That, um, and it is, I mean, the thing that, that you know, I'm a great believer in uh, children um, being able to pick up a pencil from, you know, as, as young as possible and draw and begin to understand that drawing is not just a vehicle to entertain yourself, but it's actually a fantastic form of communicating. Because if you can draw, I found um, that, you know, through my life, if you can draw, you can make communication very, very easily with people. Mm-hmm. And it's it's kind of like one of those magic things. If you're able to draw, people become mesmerized. You, you know, I know that drawing with little children is always fantastically rewarding because they they look and they're staggered, you know, and often it's because their own parents have never picked up a pencil and have never shown what you could do with just a piece of white paper and a, and a pen or magic mark or whatever it might be. Um, and that seems to me to be very sad for children, you know, because it's such a an inexpensive thing to do. There's no switching, plugging <laughs> things in. Yeah. You can create a whole world, you know, a magical world and children are just there's a moment in their life when they're completely ready for that 
Yeah. And I've I always I've always found that really very rewarding that sort of aspect, and it it is such a pity, and that's why I think that the you know all of these various schemes the the one that you've been talking about the magic pencil and drawing power and big draw are yeah. all doing the same thing. They're yes. all trying to make children aware of the world through drawing. That you know that that's making look around them. As opposed to looking in one direction, yeah. looking all around. No, that's fantastic that there, these programs exist. So, tell me, what what can we expect from you next? I know you're working on a book at the moment, which is you're you're hard up against the deadline, which I know has been driving you mad. So, what's that book going to be, and when do you think it's going to be published? Well, this book, it's very close to my heart because it's the sort of work that it lies in a way, behind everything else that has gone more, it's been published, so has been seen. And both for the short-term commission, uh, short commissions and for the books, there's a certain everyday research or a path that I tend to follow, which is trying to move my the content of my work and also the uh, techniques in my work or the way I make marks. Um, and so usually how it starts is by reading or in the books I read or maybe hear conversations or some time come, somehow come across some idea that um, touches me and then try to give a personal interpretation visually of that idea. Um, and in doing so, sometimes I come across things that then become books or sometimes I come across uh, elements that turn up in the commissioned work. And in the end, I decided to collect all this work together, dividing it up by subject matter, and uh, have this book. Therefore, it's more. For, it's not for children necessarily. It's just a collection of quotations that were the text that inspired the images. Um, so at the moment, is the process of collating the material and also uh, filling in. Now that is because none of those images were thought for a specific book but now as a collection I need to balance it out so it's a matter of doing the images that are missing to make it even and also finding the quotations for the same reason but that will be um, I will be very pleased because I really would like to see more illustrated books not just for children mm. but for adults as well and ideally novels I illustrated uh, 12 no, 24 spreads for Calvino's Invisible Cities. And there's many pieces of um, literature that have inspired colleagues of mine that I know. And I think it's just one of those things that one would wish a very enlightened publisher would come along and try. Um, there seemed to be a lot around in the 19th century. It was very common to have illustrated books for adults. And now it's extremely rare. So although this is not just one text, it's a collection of texts, I still hope that it might um, give an idea to publisher about this possibility. And then I would like to do more children's books next year. And ideally, I really would like to collaborate with theatre and maybe opera. Or yes, I could see that. I can see that because, I mean, uh, in the studio that we're sitting in, uh, when I came in earlier, there was this large three-dimensional monster <laughs> in bright red with many wings and jagged edges to it and eyes stuck on. And I could see that immediately being scaled up to theatre size. And I think that would look fantastic. Um, 
just to end on, I wanted to ask you, because there may well be, you know, young students just starting out and listening who um, would very much like to pursue a career as illustrators. And it's a very, very um, tough marketplace. There are many, many illustrators. I know that um, over the years. Do you have any advice to any any of them that might be wondering how you really sort of, you know, get there? Do you? Do you have any I thoughts? think a couple of things. One is the advice that I was given that um, I find most important for me, which is always try to carry on try exploring and looking for new things because otherwise you end up not being interested in the work anymore. And that's fundamental for your own uh life but the other one is to really persist that if you believe in what you do and if you have passion that you will find people that will see something in what you do as well and sometimes when you leave college you go and see so many places and you drop off your portfolio and you meet um, people and um, art directors and you think that nothing is going to come back but maybe eventually it will and if you persist long enough things will come back so mainly to have passion and believe in what they do that's a good note to end on Sarah Fennelly thank you very much thank you very much